Hello and welcome to Tisky Sour. I'm your host, Ash Sarka, and in a stunning reversal of fortune, I'm joined by co-host Michael Walker. Michael, will you ever get your keys back to the studio? I don't know, but I'm under house arrest, which is certainly better than being locked under the table when Dali was hosting on, on Wednesday. So I'm enjoying the, the modicum of freedom that I currently have. I'm nothing if not a benign dictator. And tonight <laughs> we're talking about the latest from Manston Asylum Centre, what FIFA don't want you to talk about during the World Cup, and Elon Musk's business strategy, insofar as he has one, for Twitter. After revelations of appalling overcrowding and unsanitary conditions at the Manston Asylum Centre in Kent, the government has stepped in to try and sort it out. Well, try is a bit of a stretch. Manston has been housing over 4,000 asylum seekers, many for weeks at a time, in a centre designed to hold a maximum of 1,600 people for 24 hours. Diseases like scabies, diphtheria and MRSA spread through the camp and there have been stories of sexual abuse, violence and even reports of home office contractors selling drugs on site. The asylum seekers at Manston have been living in a waking nightmare. But don't expect the government to show any contrition. This is Policing Minister Chris Philp on Times Radio. If people choose to enter a country illegally and unnecessarily, um, it is a bit um, you know, it's a bit of a cheek to then start complaining about the conditions when you've illegally entered the country without without necessity. And they, you know, they don't have to come here. They were in France already and previously often passed through Belgium, Germany and many other countries on the way. So we're doing our best, but the numbers are just overwhelming. And that's why we need to do more work with the French government to stop these crossings and also look at reforming the way that some of these international treaties are getting applied domestically because it is making it very hard or basically impossible to properly police our borders. Okay. A bit of a cheek to complain about the conditions. Well, I think if you enter, enter a country illegally and unnecessarily in enormous numbers, tens of thousands, and these are all sing, mostly single young men, um, it does put enormous pressure on our system. These people clearly want to come to the UK. And regardless of, of kind of motivation or, you know, why they want to leave France or whatever, they come here and then they're treated appallingly, absolutely appallingly. Well, I, I just don't, don't accept that. We're spending something like uh, two or three billion pounds a year uh, looking after people who have entered the country illegally and unnecessarily. I think, frankly, that is pretty uh, generous, actually. And the, um, our asylum accommodation is better than most European countries. Illegally and unnecessarily. I would hate to have to remind an actual government minister about the law, but you don't have to arrive through conventional means in order to legally claim asylum. And it's not exactly unnecessary when you're fleeing war, exploitation or persecution. It's totally ridiculous and offensive language there from Chris Philp. I mean, a bit of cheek is when you complain that your mum doesn't have any biscuits in when you go around to visit, not when you're effectively imprisoned with your well-being put at risk. While a thousand asylum seekers have now been moved out of the camp, a few were summarily dumped in the capital along the way. Two groups of asylum seekers were driven to Victoria Station and told to get off the bus with nowhere else to go. Sky News spoke to this man who was among them. When we reached the London, the driver tell us you go out. Then we don't know where we go. Where did they say you were going? Not, uh, not uh, where. Not uh, tell us. 
So you got on the bus from Manston, but you didn't know where you were going. Yeah, yeah. But it's not just asylum seekers who are being left in the dark. This is leader of Westminster Council, Adam Hugg, telling Radio Force Today programme what happened at Victoria from the council's perspective. So the picture is still confused even two days later. But we have reason to believe that there may have been up to two coaches that came in on Wednesday. But certainly some people, uh, but that's not 100% confirmed. What we have had is a large number of people coming into Westminster on Wednesday from Manston with the wristbands who were not, uh, and paperwork from the Home Office, but who were not being dealt with properly. Some of them got put on a coach to Norwich uh, 12 hours later. So they arrived during the middle of the day and then were taken out at 1am uh, overnight, uh, th- very early Thursday morning. Uh, and then another group of 11 presented at our homelessness services uh, yesterday, um, working with local charities uh, and, uh, and uh, to get them off the streets. So 11 people have turned up, one, um, seven of whom are very keen to be rehoused by the Home Office. Uh, so clearly there's been a breakdown in communication here. So we believe those people slept rough overnight. Um, and ultimately the chaos in Manson and the pressures trying to get that situation sorted, is having a ripple effect with people being left to sleep rough on our streets in London. So a bus set off to Norwich 12 hours after some of the asylum seekers had been dumped. Surely Norwich knew they were coming. Well, this is Stephen Evans, head of Norwich City Council. The Today programme asked whether he knew in advance that a group was heading to Norwich. No, um, I, I, I was reading the, the article uh, on my way home from work on on Wednesday, um, you know, re- reading it, and halfway down the article was the was the reference to Norwich, um, and uh, we 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 weren't we haven't been told uh, colleagues. I've checked back with colleagues at City Hall, they haven't been told, um, so we don't know who who they who they are, and we don't know where where they've gone to in the city. Aside from anything else, sending asylum seekers off to all corners of the country without letting councils properly prepare for them raises massive safeguarding issues. But even when the Home Office does manage to get asylum seekers into some kind of accommodation, usually pretty inadequate hotels, it still isn't up to taking proper care of them, especially when it comes to children. MP for Walthamstow Stella Creasy asked Home Secretary Suella Braverman this question in Parliament earlier this week. There is nothing patriotic about making children suffer, but that is exactly what is happening as a direct result of this Home Secretary's failure to get to grips with processing asylum. She talks as if the hotels are somehow a better option. In my constituency, there is one with 150 children in, squeezed alongside another 350 adults, seven or eight to a room. No notice to the local authority they would be placed there. No cooking facilities. No school places for these primary school-aged children. No clothes for most of them, especially for the winter weather. No play facilities if they are allowed out at all of these prisons. No safeguarding as far as any of us can see. If the Home Secretary is so confident that this is meeting her duty of care on behalf of this country, then will she publish the contract requirements for how children are housed in hotels and the precise details, the sorts of services they should expect and that we should be proud of as a country dealing with those fleeing asylum? Secretary. Well, we are currently uh, accommodating um, 
unaccompanied asylum-seeking children in hotels um, with a uh, with, in hotels with a maximum occupancy of 353. And there is additional accommodation available uh, coming on stream. But what I would just say to the Honourable Lady is this. I think it's a, a fallacy to suggest that we're somehow cutting corners. When I've arrived at the Home Office, I've been, frankly, very dismayed and, and appalled to find that we're spending, on average, £150 per person per night to accommodate people in hotels. By my standard, that's quite a nice hotel. The Guardian has now reported on exactly what goes on in those, and I quote, quite nice hotels. Teenage boy allegedly raped at hotel housing refugees in London. Exclusive. Met investigating two alleged sexual assaults at site amid growing fears over safety of refugee facilities. The second case concerns a child under the age of 13. The hotel in question is in Walthamstow, East London. It houses 250 adults with 150 children squeezed in alongside them. Stella Creasy gave the BBC's Wild Up One her reaction to these cases. I am shocked. I'm horrified. I felt physically sick when I was made aware of them. And the worst thing, Johnny, is I'm now aware they are not the only incidents involving these hotels, involving young children and sexual assault. This has been going on for months. The Home Office are aware of it. Nothing is changing in terms of the safeguarding of these children. My own local authority has had to step in and train the people at the hotel about safeguarding. They have been repeatedly raising concerns. But as I say, I am also aware of other instances. And the Home Secretary has a direct duty of care towards these children. Indeed, it is written into law that they need to safeguard refugee children. So having seen these instances now come up, I am very clear she's completely unfit for office and must resign. So who's in charge of this hotel? The Guardian reports this. The hotel is run by Clear Springs Ready Homes, which has a 10-year home office contract to manage asylum seeker accommodation in England and Wales. On Monday, The Guardian reported that the company increased its profits more than sixfold last year, with its three directors sharing dividends of almost £28 million. Michael, do you think that people are going to pay as much attention now that Asylum seekers are being put through hell outside of Manston Processing Centre as well as what's been going on inside Manston Processing Centre. It's very difficult to say. I suppose Manston meant that it had this sort of focal point that people were paying attention to. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, the Tories are very comfortable with this. I don't think there is anyone in Tory HQ saying we need to get migrants off the front pages of newspapers. They're happy with this. They think that their message, which is, you know, these people should be grateful. They shouldn't be here anyway, is strong. Right now, I haven't seen the polling on this. I don't quite know how, um, you know, what the breakdown is among the public. But I think this is an issue they they feel happy with. I mean, I do think it is worth emphasizing how ridiculous their line is, and especially what Chris Phillips said in that interview showed, because he said, "Yeah, we we are compassionate, but the numbers are just too big. The numbers are just too big. How could anyone possibly manage this many people?" I've got up the the number of people, the number of asylum applications that Germany had between 2015. And 2020. So this is per year. So in 2015, 476,000. In 2016, 745,000. In 2017, 222,000. Then you've got 184,000, 165,000, 122,000. That's people every year applying for asylum in Germany. We have 40,000 people, 40, people, sorry, 40,000 people 
crossing the channel. And suddenly we're like, well, you know, we'd like to have compassion, but no, no government, no country could be expected to accommodate this many people in a, in a sort of civilized um, and compassionate manner. And it's just nonsense. It's sort of another example where the British state just says, oh, you can't expect us to do anything. How could the state have capacity to deal with some, uh, with a challenge like this? Well, other countries are managing it. And the reason it's incredibly expensive is because we're relying on private hotels. It doesn't seem particularly smart sort of to have an asylum system which is based on private hotels being the only place to put people up. But maybe it would be less expensive if we invested in a different form of accommodation. But instead, the state says, oh, no, we can't do this. We can't do that. Um, We're not going to do any forward planning. If we did forward planning, all that would do is actually encourage people to come here. So we're going to allow the, the system to completely break down as some bizarre sort of disincentive to come here, even though if people are desperate to come here, they're not going to... It doesn't work like that, essentially. And it's a mess. It, it, it's difficult for... Our viewers probably don't have much sympathy for the Labour Party on this, but I, you know, I think the Tories are trying to invite them in a trap where they seem to be the defenders of people who shouldn't really be here. And Labour, don't, Labour want to keep talking about the economy, I think, reasonably. If you want to win the next general election, you should talk about the economy. But I do think this argument that we aren't overwhelmed. You know, the numbers coming to Britain are very small compared to all of these other countries, and it shouldn't be beyond any remotely half-competent government to be housing people, processing people in a way which is far more humane than what is happening now, and also far less disruptive than what is happening now. I think, you know, in a moment, we're going to talk about, you know, stories um, from Dover, etc., etc. Now, if there are people whose lives are being disrupted by what does seem like a pretty chaotic situation in in Dover, that's the fault of the state. That's the fault that the state, a few thousand people come here and suddenly everything completely breaks down. It's a bit like, you know, when it's, when we have, when it's particularly hot or particularly cold in this country, everything stops working. That's not normal. It doesn't need to be like that. Well, I especially take your point about the private hotel provision because it's a similar story for social services. So how local authorities, um, get temporary emergency accommodation for families who really need it. They've essentially got their hands tied and they've got to rely on hotels and bed and breakfasts, which are not nice places. Like they're really awful, who basically keep afloat through these council contracts and gouge the prices because the council have to pay them. They've got no other choice. So this isn't just something which applies to the asylum sector. It's also at play in the social services sector as well. It's been suggested that Suella Braverman ignored her statutory obligation to book hotel accommodation for asylum seekers, thus leading to the spread of diphtheria and scabies in overcrowded conditions and unsafe sleeping arrangements for women and children. So, yesterday she headed down to the south coast to inspect conditions at Dover and Manston, and she decided to travel in style. That's right. After having branded asylum seekers an invasion in her parliamentary statement on Monday, Suella Braverman decided to double down by arriving at Manston and Western Jetfoil in a Chinook helicopter, and then speeding off in the ministerial car, which I guess was on hand in case the Chinook got a flat tyre or something. Ms. Braverman must truly believe that a picture is worth a thousand words, because while images of her decked out in a military helmet and army green jacket were broadcast around the country, she didn't actually take any questions from journalists. And if you're thinking that it sounds pretty expensive to fly a Chinook rather than, I don't know, getting the train down to Dover, you'd be right. The Independent writes this... 
A Chinook helicopter costs £3,500 per hour to fly, according to the UK Defence Journal, and has a top speed of around 188 miles per hour, according to its manufacturer, Boeing. Downing Street defended the use of the military helicopter, saying Ms. Braverman had travelled on a military aircraft to see the area of operations at sea. It wasn't like there was a huge distance to travel between the two different sites of the Home Secretary's visit, and the time it would have taken her to get from Dover to Manston by car would have been just 40 minutes. Her ritzy mode of transportation was defended by government ministers doing the morning broadcast round. Here's Chris Philp, again, on LBC. My understanding was that the uh, helicopter wasn't simply to uh, get from A to B. She was also inspecting operations in the English Channel, where obviously these boats are crossing. Um, so it was it was for that wider purpose. And in fact, when I was in France uh, a year or two ago, when I was uh, immigration minister, as you said, um, the French authorities there uh, took me in a helicopter to look at the French beaches and the, the, the look at the places where these illegal embarkations well, what you were. What did from being airborne? From. What did you learn from well, being airborne, Minister? You get a you get a much. That's a good question. You get a much better sense of the of the terrain. You understand the operational area. Uh, you can see the routes to the beaches. Uh, you can see the embarkation points. You can see okay. where the gendarmes patrol from. So you get a much better sense of what okay. is going on um, on the ground. And, and that was a, a, a French uh, gendarme um, helicopter. It wasn't paid for by the UK taxpayer, I should, I should add. Okay. And it, it did add a lot of perspective to the situation. So the best that the government can come up with to defend a helicopter trip that costs £3,500 per hour is you can see stuff from up high. And look, I've never claimed to be Suella Braverman's fiercest defender, but I think even she knew that the sea was really big before getting in a helicopter to see for herself. It's pretty obvious what's going on here. What the government wants to do is treat the asylum issue like it's a war and present asylum seekers as enemy invaders, because who cares how enemy invaders are treated? And you don't have to do things like provide accommodation that's fit for human habitation or access to legal advice or crack down on the spread of communicable diseases for enemy soldiers. They're not meant to be here anyway. So it's a win-win for the hard right. You reinforce dehumanizing and often racist narratives about migration, and you also create the political room to wriggle out of your duty of care. By flying in a Chinook, strutting about in a helmet and refusing to take questions from journalists, Suella Bravman created an effective piece of propaganda. The image reinforces the narrative she wants to push. And because of the 24-hour news cycle, which craves content, these images get distributed around the country as part of ongoing political coverage. But sometimes reporters play a more active role in pushing government lines about small boat crossings. Here's BBC political reporter for Kent, Michael Keane, anticipating the Home Secretary's visit. This will be one of the places where the Home Secretary will come to see for herself exactly how the UK is defending itself on the front line against migrants. It's a pretty short clip, but it's an extraordinary absorption of Braverman's rhetoric about the asylum issue. And it doesn't seem to be an isolated word flub either. In his own tweets, he talked about the lengths some Kent residents have gone to because of feeling threatened by asylum seekers arriving nearby. And I thought that this exchange was pretty interesting. News. Residents at Acliffe tell me of having to defend themselves against several migrant beach landings. They say until recently it wasn't taken as seriously. One resident telling me they had to defend their property from being broken into and now sleep with a hammer. 
And when he was criticized by other Twitter users for the language he used in his reporting, Kian responded by saying, This is giving a voice to local communities on the front line. I haven't said I disagree or agree, but we cannot simply ignore those with lived experiences of being at the very front of the small boat crossings. The language defend was their words. Now look, I don't think that Kian was wrong for reporting this at all, but I do think that it's a journalist's job to contextualize what people say and not merely repeat it. This allusion to residents sleeping with hammers appears to be a reference to a story first covered by the Times a week ago. Kerry Jones, 45, a mother of a young autistic girl, said she now sleeps with a sledgehammer next to her bed after a migrant tried to enter her home through the back door in August. I heard something and thought that's too loud for the cat charging through the gate. When I looked, there was a man half over my back gate. I screamed at him, he screamed at me. Neither of us could understand a word of what we were shouting ever since I've slept with a sledgehammer next to my bed. The main image for this time story was a photograph of Ms. Jones wielding a hammer. I'm not disputing for one second that it must be very frightening to have your home broken into, particularly when you're caring for a vulnerable young person. My issue is whether talking about residential break-ins like people in Kent are literally at war, on the front lines, and having to fend off invaders is proportionate or fair reporting. Miss Jones has every right to feel how she feels about her home being broken into, and the Times have a right to report it. But there's a difference between reporting this incident and holding it up as some kind of generalized picture of the asylum issue. Because at best, it criminalizes people who are fleeing war and persecution, and at worst, it tacitly encourages acts of violence against them in the name of self-defense. And this story, I should add, was published just two days before Andrew Leake petrol-bombed the asylum center at Dover. Michael, at the beginning of the week, we saw universal condemnation of Suella Bravman's comments, and now it seems that her worldview's been absorbed into media coverage. What's going on here? Why isn't impartiality applied to this issue? I mean, I hadn't seen that clip of that BBC journalist and it was just, I'm blown away. That was just pathetic. Like he thinks he's a war reporter, like he's gone to Dover. And yes, it does seem like a chaotic situation. But essentially what it is, is you've got lots of desperate people who, you know, the facilities haven't been provided for them that they need. And he's acting as if he's a war reporter, like, like he's got like a big helmet. Like it's, it's, it's an umbrella, mate. You know, you're not, you're, not, you're not holding some sort of defensive equipment. It's raining and you're holding an umbrella. I'm here in Dover. Britain is defending its borders against these... Mo- that's, that's insane. I was blown away by that. But I mean, in general, I just someone on Twitter said it's called a Chinook, not a Chinook. But um, I don't know either. I, I'm going to still call it a Chinook because it sounds more natural to me. What seems to be happening here is, you know, Maggie Thatcher in her first term, right? She had uh, a period where inflation was very high. I mean, in, in that era, she forced unemployment up very high. We don't have that right now, but we have our own sort of separate difficult economic problems. And she was very lucky in that the Argentinian dictatorship decided to invade the Falklands. And she could go there and say, you know, it's well within our right to go and defend this island. Um, the inhabitants of it did actually want the Brits to come and rescue them. I mean, it probably should never have been part of Britain, but whatever. She got to fight what looked like a just war big outbreak of jingoism, very successful for her. And it kind of distracted from some of those economic woes. I mean, there was a bit of a recovery by 1983 anyway, but it was very, very helpful for her. This government, they're facing a disastrous economic situation, facing, I think we could well expect quite a lot of unrest in the country over the next year or so. Now, for a while, I mean, we saw it with Liz Truss. It was very, very transparent. It was all 
well, what I want you to be talking about is Putin. I want you to be talking about this external enemy. That was a bit too abstract. You know, Ukraine is a faraway place. Russia is a faraway place. It was difficult to sort of present this as we're defending Britain. Now she's had to make up or she's had to sort of invent this idea that actually Britain, Britain itself is under attack. We are being invaded and we're being invaded by a few thousand desperate people who are looking for asylum. And so when we have a situation where what do people need? They need somewhere safe to stay so their asylum applications can be processed quickly, which by the way, they're not. That's the reason the system is overwhelmed is because they stop processing people's applications. We used to have just as many people arriving, but the applications were processed quickly. So this sort of backlog didn't occur. That's the reason we're having this. But whereas it would be useful to put this money towards the legal system so that this backlog could be cleared, instead, what you've got is you've got her going in a big military helicopter to pretend that we are at war, because what they want to do is distract from economic problems. And if we can all rally around the flag to say, we need to defend ourselves against these migrants, they think that will help them. I mean, it's incredibly cynical from the Conservative Party. It's just pathetic from a BBC journalist. Like, what does he think he's doing? You're not a war correspondent. You're a correspondent in Kent, right? Kent is not at war. Phenomenal. When I'm mayor of London, Kent will be at war with me. Let's go to the next story. On the 20th of November, the 2022 World Cup will begin in the Gulf state of Qatar. It's football's biggest international tournament and held just once every four years. It draws thousands of fans to the host nation while millions of viewers tune in from around the world. In short, there's a huge amount of money riding on a successful World Cup. And no one knows this better than the game's governing body, FIFA, which is why they've now written to the national teams taking part and told them to keep out of politics. This letter is written by FIFA's President and Secretary General and says this. FIFA would like to assure you that in Qatar, everything has been prepared to ensure that every participating nation will have the very best chance of achieving success on football's ultimate stage. The eight state-of-the-art stadiums where 64 matches of the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 trademark sign will be played will provide the perfect platform for the world's greatest sporting event. So please, let's now focus on the football. We know football does not live in a vacuum and we are equally aware that there are many challenges and difficulties of a political nature all around the world. But please do not allow football to be dragged into every ideological or political battle that exists. Hmm. So what are these political battles that FIFA wants footballers to keep themselves out of? When Qatar won the right to hold the World Cup in 2010, it had only one stadium, the Khalifa Stadium, which was opened in 1976. But between 2010 and now, it built seven more at a cost of an estimated $200 billion. It managed this by importing huge numbers of migrant workers from countries in Africa and Asia to work in construction and hospitality. There are now some 2 million migrant workers living in Qatar. But migrant workers in the Middle Eastern nation don't enjoy many fundamental protections. They're often bound to their employers under the kafala system, meaning that until 2020, a worker needed the permission of their employer to change jobs or even leave the country. A situation that Amnesty International described as, and I quote, sometimes amounting to forced labor. 
Their living conditions have also been described as unsanitary and inadequate, and many were not paid the salaries they were promised. This is a video from a France 24 story. The worker's identity is protected because in Qatar, it's illegal to broadcast images critical of the country. This is the life we are living here in Qatar, Doha. This place is very dirty smelling. The life we are living here is hell. I don't want anyone to know that I'm doing this. This is our accommodation. See? So come inside, come inside. Some people are sleeping down here. In the night, some people sleep down here. Someone do like this. Why like this? The company say will provide us bed. The company will provide us food. And this is how we cook our food here. We're just trying to survive here. This is what we buy now. We don't have any place to go and get some food, you see? This is what we eat. The thing about what is happening to us, we are tired now. We are really tired. That's all I can say. Every day they promise us to give up the salary and not yet giving the salary. Yeah, it's about a year now, not only me, but all my friends. We try to talk to the company. The company say we'll take us to police. Some of us want to go back to their countries. Some of us want to change companies. The company has taken all our passports. What should we do here? This is slavery. This is kind of prison. This is a, you abusing human rights. This is not fair. This kind of life is not fair. But it doesn't end with inhumane conditions and modern day slavery. Because thousands of those workers have died since Qatar was awarded the World Cup. In 2021, The Guardian reported that 6,750 migrant workers from just five Asian nations had died since 2010. Most of them were young and fit men, and many worked outside for 12 or 13 hours a day in temperatures reaching up to 45 degrees centigrade. Those figures are just from five countries, so the true figures are much higher though we'll probably never know because Qatar has a habit of failing to investigate the causes of migrant deaths. The Guardian reports that 69% of those 6,751 recorded deaths were attributed to natural causes or cardiac arrest and contained no information about the underlying causes of death. A recent Amnesty International report adds this. Bangladeshi government records attributed 71% of the deaths of Bangladeshi nationals in Qatar from November 2016 to October 2020 to natural causes. And a 2020 report by Nepal's Ministry of Labour, Employment and Social Security found that 55% of Nepali deaths in Qatar between 2008 and 2019 were either from cardiac arrest or natural causes. Taken together, such figures show that thousands of deaths have gone effectively unexplained over the last decade without any meaningful cause of death reported. Qatar is the fourth richest country in the world by GDP per head. And yet the families of those who died since 2010 regularly receive no compensation. 
And it's not only migrant workers that Qatar treats as though they're less than human. The country hates LGBT people too. According to Human Rights Watch, Qatar punishes consensual sexual relations between men above 16 with up to seven years imprisonment. It also provides penalties between one and three years for any male who instigates or entices another male to commit an act of sodomy or immorality. Those are the legal punishments for being gay, but there are some extra legal ones too. The I newspaper interviewed Ali, a migrant worker who had come to Qatar from the Philippines. And just a heads up, this next part contains a description of rape. I'll be reading it for maybe a minute, so feel free to come back after that period of time has elapsed. It was early 2018 when a man messaged him on a gay dating app. Then I received a call telling me he is interested to meet me, says Ali. The man was Turkish, which seemed reassuring to Ali as he was probably just another foreign worker like him. He then offered Ali QR300, roughly uh, £70. But the condition was I had to go to his hotel and he would bring a dress and makeup for me to wear, he says. I decided to go. Ali had never accepted money before, but this was an opportunity to top up his salary, much of which was already being sent home. When I saw the hotel, I entered inside. It was the 10th floor. He walked straight ahead down the corridor and on the left was the room. I opened the door and I went inside. There are six people, he says, in the present tense, as if reliving the scene. There are six people. His voice cuts off. After a few seconds, another voice comes on the line. It's Ali's best friend who is here to support him during the interview. Can I talk? He is crying. While Ali tries to compose himself in the background, his friend, whom we'll call Datu, takes over. The six other men were, he says, Qatari police. They captured him, says Datu. Ali starts to speak again. I really wanted to jump out the window, but I can't. It's too high and I'm already cornered inside the room, he says. They catched me and threw me on the bed. They started to rape me. When one officer was done, he says, another took over. All of them except the Turkish man. He watched until they finished. He was laughing at me. Ali was taken from that crime scene to a migration processing center, and two days later he was deported to the Philippines. These are the so-called political issues that FIFA doesn't want footballers talking about, what the rest of us might call the right to be treated like a human being. I mean, Michael, sports washing isn't anything new, but this is pretty extreme and pretty gross behavior from FIFA. Do you foresee any backlash coming from the players or the fans during the World Cup? Probably not. I mean, those, I mean, I suppose just like the stories you just told are so horrific. And I mean, being a migrant worker in Qatar just sounds like like a living hell. Um, I think it's a complete disgrace that the World Cup is being held in Qatar. It was a completely corrupt process. Um, I mean, it doesn't seem to make much sense to have a football tournament in the desert anyway. I think Qatar are developing like outdoor air conditioning. So, you know, air conditioning already is not the most, you know, it's necessary. It's not the most sort of environmentally friendly thing. They're now going to be air conditioning the outdoor air. This is not efficient. This is, this is not green. It's not a sensible thing to do. It's also not particularly sensible having a World Cup in the winter, but there we are. I think it probably will not be a big problem for Qatar. Now, and the reason I say this is because I sort of had a deja vu all of these discussions about sort of Qatar human rights abuses and what it means for the World Cup. Because in 2018, 
we had exactly the same conversations about Russia. Now they had, you know, fairly recently at the time, annexed Crimea would have been four years, but recent in terms of annexations. Obviously, Crimea was is still very much a contested region. You know, also, they'd had a contested election, very bad rights when it comes to LGBT people. Now, there were lots of discussions about should people boycott the Russian World Cup, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's a certain momentum. Once the football starts, everyone forgets about this. And I've got some quotes from various people at the close of, of the Russia World Cup. This is Steve Rosenberg. So he's now BBC Russia editor. And so he said at the close of the World Cup, the stunning new stadiums, free train travel to venues, and the absence of crowd violence has impressed visiting supporters. Russia has come across as friendly and hospitable, a stark contrast with the country's authoritarian image. All the foreign fans I have spoken to are pleasantly surprised. The FIFA president said this, Everyone discovered a beautiful country, a welcoming country that is keen to show the world that everything has been said before might not be true. A lot of preconceived ideas have been changed because people have seen the true nature of Russia. And then the New York Times said, sometime around France's virtuoso victory against Argentina and Belgium's breathtaking comeback against Japan, the planet seemed to come to a decision. Russia 2018, it was universally decided, had not just been a good World Cup and not just a great World Cup. It had, in fact, been the best World Cup. Now, you know, the idea that what people saw when they went to the World Cup in Russia was the true Russia now seems like a bit of a joke. But I think you have a news cycle where before the World Cup, there's not that much to write about because there's no sports to talk about. There's no one watching it. So the newspapers talk about human rights abuses. The moment the World Cup starts, people start talking about the football. And, you know, your reading audience, your reading publics don't actually want to be brought down by talking about the human rights abuses in the country where the tournament is being held because they've got football fever at that point in time. All completely understandable. You know, people have said, has it backfired Qatar having this because it's sort of shone a light on human rights abuses in Qatar in a way that otherwise, you know, wouldn't have happened. Obviously, do they want all of these news stories about the terrible human rights in Qatar, which, you know, are motivated principally by the fact that the World Cup is there? Potentially not. But I think they're gambling that once the World Cup starts, all of that is going to be ancient history, which, I mean, as those quotes show, was kind of the case in Russia. That gamble paid off for Putin. Now, obviously, you can say, you know, obviously, sports washing is only going to get you so far. If you're then going to invade your neighbor, um, you're going to still be considered a bit of a rogue state. But it seems like in the short term for Russia, the soft power they got from hosting that World Cup was was reasonable. And I wouldn't be surprised if Qatar pulls the same thing off. I've got to say that I really agree with you. And I wonder if the Qatari strategy will be, you know, ease up on the religious policing over the period of the World Cup. Don't be too nasty to LGBT traveling supporters. But then what the the room of soft power gives you afterwards is that people are going to be, you know, less likely to crack down hard or divest or, you know, pour on international condemnation afterwards. That'll be left with a relatively positive image of your country. And then also when you think about the kind of uh, jockeying for position amongst Gulf states and also the kind of, you know, please don't invade me noises being made by Qatar towards uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia, you kind of get the sense that they sort of see this World Cup as, as enveloping them in a kind of protective cloak of soft power. And also the last thing that I'll say on this is I think that Formula One offers a really good example of what happens when you try to have both sports washing and also room for, you know, 
rich and famous athletes to sort of express their condemnation or solidarity with marginalized groups. It means absolutely nothing to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia that Lewis Hamilton will race with a rainbow decal on his helmet or on his car. It means absolutely nothing to them that Sebastian Vettel is critical of climate policies. You've done the work by hosting Grand Prix there and by bringing in all that money and bringing in all that wealth and bringing in all that investment and normalization of conditions in Saudi Arabia kind of doesn't matter what performative uh, gesture is being made by athletes who, who feel their conscience is being prickled. And I'm not saying that is shade against Lewis Hamilton. I'm team Lewis all the way, but I think that shows just how easily those symbols of dissent can be co-opted. Let's move on to our final story. It's been about a week since Elon Musk took over at Twitter. Since then, he sacked the entirety of the executive suite, beefed with Stephen King about charging for verification, and for some reason dragged a sink into the lobby of Twitter HQ. But today, the world's richest man embarked on a brutal round of corporate layoffs that will cut half of Twitter's 7,500-person workforce. And the bonfire of the tweets was an absolute shit show. It started yesterday evening when staff received an email letting them know what to expect. Those who were staying would be notified by work email at 9am Pacific time, but those who would let go would get an email sent to their personal address at 9am as well. And anyone who didn't get an email should just message HR to chase up. But for many UK Twitter staff, dark signs and portents emerged at 3am GMT when they suddenly found themselves locked out of their work laptops, email accounts and company Slack. This is Chris Uni, a London-based member of Twitter's staff. Well, this isn't looking promising. Can't log into emails, Mac won't turn on. But so grateful this is happening at 3am. Really appreciate the thoughtfulness and the timing front, guys. Meanwhile, to everyone else at Twitter, you're the best. Hashtag one team. And look, there are legal standards in both the US and the UK about the minimum notice an employer can give before firing somebody. So Elon Musk, in firing thousands of people without due notice, might be opening himself up to some very costly lawsuits and they're already trickling in. The filings allege that the workers were not given enough notice of their firing in accordance with both the Federal Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act, also known as WARN, and the California WARN Act. And these pieces of legislation require that companies give employees at least 60 days of advance notice before a mass firing takes place, which is obviously a little bit more than the single day given by Elon Musk. The teams given the axe or severely pruned by Elon Musk include content moderation, algorithmic transparency, misinformation, curation, and publishing partnerships. Meanwhile, spooked by the thought of Twitter becoming a slur-filled MAGA free-for-all, companies like Volkswagen, General Mills, and Pfizer have stopped or paused advertising on the platform. So if Twitter was struggling in its climb towards profitability before Musk took over, the combination of ad losses and his own debt loading have made its financial position even more precarious. So who does Elon Musk blame for this situation? His advisors, or perhaps even, God forbid, himself? No, it's the activists. He tweeted this. 
Twitter has had a massive drop in revenue due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, even though nothing has changed with content moderation and we did everything we could to appease the activists. Extremely messed up. They're trying to destroy free speech in America. And because we're in the banter timeline now, Twitter has added a context note to Musk's tweet with links to three news articles referring to advertisers suspending or cancelling ad buys over concern with Twitter platform direction. But there's not any evidence that any of this is due to concerted effort by activists for companies to pull dollars from the platform. But what this goes to show is that despite his claims to be equally loathed by the right and the left, Elon Musk is actually fully invested in a right-wing moral panic about the left clamping down on freedom of speech. It's not a huge surprise why corporations don't want their products advertised next to Nazi symbols or rape threats. And with Elon Musk's own conduct on Twitter, including sharing conspiracy theories about Paul Pelosi and falsely claiming that one of the men involved in the Thai cave rescue was a paedophile, you can see why someone looking to flog Cheerios or Lucky Charms might think their marketing budget is better spent elsewhere. There's also a more serious side to all of this. In just a few days, Americans will be going to the polls in the midterms, and the candidates who've been most popular in the Republican Party have been those who endorsed the conspiracy theory that Joe Biden stole the 2020 election. Twitter doesn't have as many users as Facebook or Instagram, but is particularly influential in terms of politics and media, and that's why banning Trump was so contentious. It's not just about content moderation. It's about social media platforms wielding immense power over the direction of democracy. So with Americans about to go to the ballot again, and trust in the integrity of the process deeply polarized along party lines, what kind of information is disseminated on Twitter and feeds through both to new media and legacy media is really important. So Michael, what do you think the ultimate game plan is for Elon Musk? Is he sincere in going all out for profit? Or does he actually want to build power for the right, even if it loses him money? I don't know. This is one of those stories, Elon Musk and Twitter, where I quite like being in the hosting chair, because I don't know what I think about it. You know, I really sit on the fence when it comes to this one. I mean, I'm I'm different to some people on the left, because I don't, I don't think Elon Musk is an idiot. Like I think SpaceX and Tesla are both very impressive companies. I do think they were innovative. I do think they sort of changed the fields in which they entered. And, you know, there's some use to them. I mean, sort of developing high-grade batteries in Tesla, that's going to be useful for greening the economy. SpaceX, I'm sure there'll be loads of technologies that come out of that that are vaguely useful. He seems like a fairly productive guy when it comes to those companies. Twitter, I'm just finding it so difficult to read. I mean, if you look at his, his, his Twitter thread, it's not very reassuring. This is a guy who seems to be lashing out at everyone. You know, $8 isn't much. Why is everyone hating on me? Like, he doesn't seem you know, particularly well, he doesn't seem like someone who has a particularly good plan for this company. I mean, you can also say that the manner in which he bought the company doesn't portend particularly well for it. Seems like sort of on a whim, he said he'd want to buy it. Didn't realize that saying he wanted to buy it sort of had some legal import and was essentially forced to buy it and preempted sort of losing the court case. So so bought it thinking, that, oh, maybe I can do something with this. I don't see how he's going to make it profitable. Well, actually, this is interesting, because I was about to say I don't see how he's going to make it profitable. But what I heard today on the radio, actually, Twitter, up to now, had been making a 30% profit margin every year. So the advertising was more than paying for all the costs that go into Twitter. The reason it was seen as a failure is because it wasn't doubling its user base and it wasn't sort of valued as highly as, as the Facebooks and the Instagrams of the world. 
but it, it didn't actually need revolutionary transformation to remain sustainable because it was making a profit. It just wasn't as overvalued as, as, as Facebook and Instagram, et cetera, because the, you know, the profit stream wasn't as, as high as it would be, which is also understandable because Facebook, Instagram, they're all mass products. Twitter is a niche product, I think, essentially. The political importance of it is you've got lots of journalists, you've got lots of politicians using it. And so it's, as Elon Musk says, I think he's, he's quite right when he says it is a public square. I mean, the argument that's, that's made for how he could make it better, sort of like Matt Iglesias, sort of like a centrist commentator in the United States says, is he says the big problem with Twitter isn't so much free speech or political correctness or, sec- or moderation, it's engineering. And if you know, Elon Musk has pushed through some useful engineering innovations when it comes to his um, other companies, if he does that to Twitter and makes it more usable and more sort of satisfying to, to be a part of, you know, potentially that could be a success. I, I, it's somewhat abstract to me exactly what that would look like. It does seem more, though, that this is sort of him playing a political game and his politics seem incredibly crude. Like, he seems very smart when it comes to engineering, very smart when it comes to sort of building a company. He doesn't seem particularly, I mean, he's obviously bright, but like when he talks about politics, it just doesn't sound very smart. I mean, let's put it like that. Like, it, his Twitter feed now, it looks like an idiot is tweeting and firing all of these people. I can see why he does it. He thinks he's sort of like clearing out the censorious liberal left. He thinks that Twitter is is censorious towards the right, but not towards the far left. I think probably what he wants is some sort of policy where it doesn't matter so much about discrimination if or discriminatory beliefs, let's say. What matters is whether or not you're advocating violence and then you can draw some sort of equivalence between Black Lives Matter and so, so, some sort of equivalence between the capital rights and, and BLM. And I think that's, he's going to say, so we, we need to take the politics out of it. If you are calling for violence, you're off. If you're not calling for violence, you're on. If you're directing your ire at someone personally, um, that undermines the user experience, so you're off. But if you're expressing some abstract belief that happens to be racist or perceived by many people to be racist, then he's going to be much looser on that. I mean, I think also him buying it will... Push the di- it, it will benefit the Republicans or the crazy end of the Republicans anyway. Whether or not that's exactly what he's trying to do, I don't. I don't know. See, I think on this thing about like, is Elon Musk a canny businessman and a good engineer? I mean, I think we could have a really good debate about this because my feeling of of Elon Musk is that people try and compare him to like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. I actually think the person you want to compare him to is P.T. Barnum, where his business acumen is directly related to his celebrity. Because you look at where of his wealth, where his wealth comes from. Lots of it comes from investments and things which rise in value along with the amount of attention he's able to draw to himself and his ability to leverage his celebrity. One of the really interesting things about Tesla is that an awful lot of their profit comes from carbon credit schemes. So they essentially sell carbon credits because they make electric cars to um, polluting industries and other car manufacturers. And that's been a real source of income for them. Now, someone might say, well, that is in itself an innovation, but I think that it cuts against this sense of a kind of ex machina style tech genius. I mean, you know, when you think about how what he did with, I've never had to say this word out loud, and it's going to be really embarrassing. Dogecoin, Dogecoin. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is Dogecoin. You say Dogecoin like the Venetian Doge, Jesus Christ! But like with Dogecoin, it's like there's massive. That was a bit James kind of, Butler there. What the hell is a Venetian Doge? I can tell you how, <laughs> how, how to Venetian pronounce Dogecoin. Doge? I can't tell you what a Venetian Doge is. <laughs> 
I'm going to come back next Monday completely bald and like peering kind of imperiously over some spectacles. But one of the things that he did with Dogecoin is that you drive up its value by its association with Elon Musk, the celebrity. Every time he tweets about it, its value goes up because more people are buying the product. It's a massive transfer of wealth from his fans to him. And then he just, he can drop it when it's no longer, you know, when he wants to. He can be the first one to get out before everyone else and everyone else loses money. So I think there's something there about the connection between, you know, celebrity and his reputation as a a canny businessman but really quickly would you pay eight dollars a month for verification yes or no no but saying that i wouldn't rule it out i Mm. I mean i definitely wouldn't do it for a tick because i think actually i'd be too embarrassed to do it for the tick but if it was the case that he managed to create a product which was far better for those who paid eight pounds because i do find twitter you know lots of people hate twitter i quite enjoy twitter and i enjoy twitter because i don't treat it really as sort of like an opinion machine i don't have many arguments on twitter i'm not particularly interested in sort of like how do we get to the correct line via twitter i think it's actually quite an unhealthy way that the left organizes on there because i think it's sort of it can lead to an attitude where you're actually not particularly curious what you're doing is policing other people's opinions and it ends up just being a bit of a hellhole I use Twitter because there are lots of experts on there, lots of people who put out wacky ideas, sort of follow all sorts of people. I tweet as many questions as I tweet opinions. And so for me, it's sort of a space to get ideas, to be pointed to sort of different facts, to see useful graphs and charts and all of that. I learn a lot from it. And I suppose if if there was, I mean, I hope he doesn't do this, but if there was a way where he manages to put a paywall where it's it's much easier to use Twitter in the way that I use it than um, if you don't, have that, you know, eight pound premium account, whatever. And I can't imagine paying the eight pound. So, but again, I don't know how many people there are who use Twitter like me. So I don't see how that's going to make the company that much money or more money than it's currently making from advertising. So again, as I say, I'm, I'm sitting on the fence on this one, but I do, it's interesting. Obviously, I should say, of course, we shouldn't have the public square, you know, the global public square square being subject to the whims of the world's richest man who can just buy it at the drop of the hat and then sack half its staff and then sack the board, become the sole director, and then just write the terms and conditions policies like with a biro lying on his bed. Like this is this is not a healthy way to run society. But I, I don't know, given all that, what direction you know the page is going to go in. Ash, can you imagine paying eight pounds? I mean, I don't want to because the thing that holds me back is being seen to pay for status is the most cringe thing you can do. But genuinely, I'm like, oh, is someone going to like make some account pretending to be me and like fill it with pornography, which is something which happened to me before. And like the weirdest one was when someone on Instagram used my real phone number to set up an account called like Pegging Slut 69. And I was like... Look, nothing against pegging, but anyone who knows me knows that I'm just not that energetic and I don't do anything that requires form like forward planning. So that would be the circumstances in which I can imagine paying for it. But then I kind of resent paying for something which is to do with safety. Like I resent that. Um, mm. But I found it quite funny when you were like, I used Twitter for the graphs, which is, you know, when people used to say, I read Playboy for the interviews. You know, I'm like, oh, come on. You're looking no, at so the I memes don't very with the much. rest of us. Oh, and the meat. Well, I like people always complain that it's got all this sponsored content now, but I love that. I'm like, I like more dogs doing <laughs> cute things and, you know, no context Brits than I do anyone's opinions now. So, all like mine is just graphs and pets. Um, and actually, I think the algorithm's working just fine, Ash. 
my favorite sponsored content is from like um kind of provincial real estate agents who kind of like tweet a headshot of themselves so that's like my favorite kind of sponsored content that's it for tonight so thank you michael for joining me it was a pleasure please come back i i don't think that i i can kill and replace my own father this whole episode has been a freudian nightmare for me you've been watching tisky sour on navarra media good night this broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.